welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from, and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Hi, thank you for listening. Episode number 111, triple one, feels like it should be lucky. And thank you for the feedback on last week's show with Ollie Hudson at The Pig. Nice guy, awesome gardens. And for those of you who are listening, I'm sure you'll be utterly relieved to hear that a number of the tomatoes in my garden did actually go red since the recording. Ah, you're welcome. Albeit, green tomato chutney recipes are very much welcome at the moment. So, this has been the week that our thoughts continue to be backed up by the facts. Everyone I'm speaking with fortunately has very little evidence of much coronavirus transmission within hospitality venues. I've been struggling to find anyone aware of a transmission or at any point asked for track and trace data from all the information we are recording from our customers. And now the times have confirmed it. This weekend, finding out that hundreds of millions of records have been saved, but barely used by the 12 billion pounds track and trace system. Once again, it feels that we're leading the way, putting in the systems, doing the work, recording the details, but instead of being held up as an example to society, we are unfairly blamed for transmissions. One of the companies that had built a tracing app had 340 clients, including Leon and Pret, and had registered more than 8 million visits to 10,000 venues only knew of two that had been contacted by health officials. Combine that with the latest statistic and hospitality union's weekly pie chart and once again demonstrated lower than 3% transmission rates in hospitality venues. We're being exonerated by the data and the science but punished by government policy. I really cannot help but think that legal action will be heading the government's way. Boris, if you're listening, cancel the curfew. We don't need a grant of £500 a week. We need you to stop telling us to trade whilst tying our hands behind our backs and launching a campaign telling the public that we are to blame and should be avoided. It is wrong on so many levels. Right, COVID is boring. I'm over it. Let's have a chat with a guest and learn some cool stuff. David Begg is one of those hospitality obsessives regular listeners will know I love to me. Another one of those humans that has a little tiny seedling of an idea that turns into an obsession, that turns into an utterly awesome product, that then enhances all of our worlds of food and drink and hospitality. And this time I'm talking about kombucha. But not just any kombucha, but the sort that is now sitting on the menus of many of the finest Michelin-starred restaurants around the country, proudly sitting alongside Prosecco and Champagne as an alcohol-free alternative. You see, it transpires that if you ferment some of the finest tea leaves, picked young in some of the world's best tea gardens, with some mother cultures, a little bit of magic and a whole heap of David's obsession, you can create something beautiful and complex and light and delicious. We're going to chat to David about alcohol-eating bacteria, 
DNA-tested cultures that could be hundreds of years old, 150 different types of tea, and don't worry, we do not go into the detail on all of them. Picking tea leaves whilst they're young and different days picks and how rubbing the leaves around a hot wok can transform the end result and drink. But as well as a great product, this is also a great story of David the businessman and how a chance over dinner drink with yoga and wellness guru Howard Napper sent David off on a journey. And David has had an entrepreneurial brain, having previously been involved in the technology that later became Booking.com and selling furniture in over 62 countries through the business Tom Dixon that he also co-founded. I am confident you will enjoy this chat and by the end of it have a whole heap of new knowledge, be desperate to try David's real kombucha and be inspired by another business story. And if you are, or if you've enjoyed a previous episode, please, and I know I ask you every time, but if you knew you had thousands of listeners every week, but only 104 five-star reviews, you would realise we still had a way to go. So if you can, please pick up the device you're listening on, find the podcast player, scroll down to the review section, hit five stars and subscribe. And if you're feeling really motivated, leave a few words. And I promise you, it's not just because I'm some egocentric review junkie. It's just more reviews, means more listeners, means it's much easier for me to get guests to say yes to coming on the show, which means better interviews and more good stuff for your ears and mind. And if they are cool reviews, I might even give you a mention. Like Liv Robinson from Devour at the Die House. Your venue looks lovely, Liz. Thank you for your kind words this week. I appreciate you taking the time. Right, let's get on with the show and go and meet David. Cheers. David Begg from Real Kombucha. Lovely to meet you. Uh, founder uh, of, of the company. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. For Not people listening, can you just explain where are we in the world, please, David? So set, we're, set, we're set sitting, the scene. Yeah, we're sitting here in, uh, I would love to say sunny Wendover, but unfortunately it's a, a fairly rainy day outside. Uh, Wendover's uh, just about 40, 45 miles to the northwest of London. Uh, it's just deep in the Chiltern Hills, so we're between Aylesbury and, uh, and Amersham. But uh, right up in the Chiltern Hills, um, looking out across farmland, and, yeah. uh, and the brewery here is on the on a farm. Perfect near Checkers, did I hear as well? Is that right? Yeah, it's not, yeah, actually just a little bit over the over yeah. the hill. Over, I'm pointing over. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, for people watching. Yeah, I was chatting to a friend who was actually brought up near here, so he knew it really. He actually knew yeah. this road. I was chatting to our IT guy this morning when I was leaving. He said, "Where are you going?" I was like, well, "You know, Wendover. Whereabouts? What's the name of the road? Rocky, Rocky Lane. Rocky Lane. And he knew it. There's a rifle range or something near here, or well, at least there used to be. Also, there's the River Misbourne, which goes all the way down through Amersham, etc. And apparently the source of it is actually the road down here. It used to be runoff down the road, and really? then the river starts just at the bottom of the road. Okay, so well, there you go. You don't know, is, is Boris at Checkers at the minute? Because I've, I've got a few things no, I'd yeah. love to chat with him about <laughs> in the world in world of hospitality. But Self-isolating. Yeah, yeah, we've, all, we've already <laughs> promised not to go there. So, yeah. I'm, you know, genuinely really excited to, to go on a sort of kombucha adventure mm. The whole non-booze or, or less booze thing, I think, is fascinating. So I've been meaning on doing it, and I've chatted to some some sort of cocktail makers, but I haven't actually done a podcast on it yet. So really excited right. to to dive deep into it. Amazed at what you've achieved. So you know, researching uh, yesterday, and, and it's been a relatively short period of time that you've been going, but you're already in some incredible restaurants, yeah. incredible chefs have been using you. So yeah, 
genuinely excited basically to learn how the bloody hell have you done this in what is a relatively new category and achieved so much in, in the last few years. But lots of people listening, apart from uh, listening to me not be able to pronounce it, will go, what is it? What's kombucha? So do you mind if we just start with what is kombucha, please? Not at all. So, so kombucha is, in its simplest term, just fermented tea. But that can mean anything from putting a tea bag in a pot to what we do, which is working with exquisite loose leaf teas from very specialist tea gardens uh, around the world. The difference between what we do and, say, a winemaker wine in their fermentation is that um, kombucha is a yeast and bacterial fermentation. So the yeast is busily gobbling up the sugars uh, and converting them into alcohol, but then bacteria alongside are busily gobbling up that alcohol and turning it into, into beneficial acids. Uh, and so you've got a product that is uh, quite tart, not much. It's, it's about the pH of, a, of a, uh, quite a tart white wine. So it's not highly acidic, um, but, it's, uh, but it's quite tart. And you get these sort of fruity notes uh, that come through in the fermentation, just as you do in, uh, in the production of, uh, of wine or sparkling wines. Amazing. So those bacteria, I go straight into the geeky bit. Yeah, That's um. Be here for an hour. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, people who listen regularly, oh my God, he's, he's gone already. But but where do those bacteria, because when you make wine, for example, it, those bacteria don't eat the uh, sugar that makes the alcohol, presumably. That's because they're not in wine. Where do they come from the tea or do you put them in? Or where? So, well, so two, two sides to that. The reason they don't uh, affect wine is because you spend so much time cleaning everything in wine to make sure that it's only the yeasts that you put into the initial ferment that are uh, in the uh, in the, the winemaking. Uh, if you left wine open-topped, and if you go back into traditional uh, winemaking, you get natural yeasts that uh, that are on the grapes that um, uh, that enter the uh, the must and start to ferment. But you also get bacteria. So. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, traditional wines are actually quite acidic, you know, because they have natural bacteria that get in there as well. Now, we do something more controlled in that, in that we grow what we call our, our old mothers. Yeah. So these mother cultures, uh, and we have in the brewery now eight mother cultures. Oh, no, sorry, ten uh, different mother cultures, um, and those are cultures we've grown up over the years um, and we've got we've, we've pulled them in from different places and then we've uh, we've developed them we've fed them we've we've uh, grown them up uh, and we monitor their um, their yeast development and their bacterial development constantly uh, we've DNA tested them so we know exactly what's in there in terms of yeast and bacteria uh, so that we uh, we've got something that's really healthy that then we can feed into our, uh, our into our drink fermentation. Wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? You, you DNA test them. Like, can you tell where where, where they've come from? Then, like, you know, how, uh, we, I'm thinking in a human, you DNA test them and you find out basically we all came from the plains of Savannah. Is yeah, that where, is, not, is, not that, is that where they come no, from as well? It's right? not the mitochondrial side of it. You know, we can't. Okay. Well, as, far, as far as I'm aware, I don't know. But no, we're, we're DNA testing them to to understand exactly what the the yeast strain is because right. from that we can understand the detail of their uh, of their metabolism and we understand what they're producing and how and why and therefore as we balance between one type of yeast and another within our uh, within our mother batches we can tweak to pull out particular flavors we're looking for etc so amazing yeah. yeah so is this a little bit like a sourdough where these cultures basically can live for multiple years and yeah, generations absolutely. even and yeah i mean we you know we've been operating with the same you know, when I first started brewing kombucha, um, it's the same cultures that I was using that five years ago or so uh, when mm. we first started uh, fermenting. And, we've, and, and, you know, those 
you know, we got them from various different sources at the time and blended them together and, you know, got different flavors, etc. out of them. But they were probably, you know, they, they're from potentially even hundreds of years back um, oh. that they've, uh, that they've uh, carried on growing. Brilliant. Um, so it's already yeah. great. And I already know I'm going to love it. We're going to, we're going to try some in a minute. Not quite yet. But uh, okay. So, so presumably then this, this is quite a traditional drink. It's been around for thousands of years. Is that right? Yeah. I'm guessing more in Asia, more in traditional tea places than in Europe. Is it? Where's it, where's it come from? Yeah. Well, look, originally this would have been someone, because it's a natural fermentation, someone would have put a sweet, a cup of sweet tea on the side, natural yeast and bacteria from the atmosphere because you know we're, we're surrounded by yeast and bacteria in the atmosphere around us the whole time on our skin you know airborne on fruits and other things they would have um infected you know the uh, the drink uh, and it would have naturally fermented now the challenge usually with something like that so you know if you're anyone listening to this thinks they just stick a cup of tea on the side um the challenge with it is usually molds get in there as well and that will um, infect and will cause a negative. Um, you don't want to be drinking something that's got mold on it. Um, so you're trying to steer clear of molds. Um, and so yes, but if it, if it had um, if it without the mold, it had um, been injected with the yeast and bacteria, it would have then fermented. You would have created something that was fairly akin to what we have today. And then that just then continues. So you just then feed it with more tea, and it will carry on growing and growing around. Uh, over time right. so. uh, but something that's been therefore stayed popular because this is, seems to have a bit of a resurgence in the UK particularly I suppose or in Europe in general over the last few years has it always been popular if you go over to, to China and India and places or, or not really well it's you know so a couple of thousand years ago it was you know it's the first time people were talking about fermented teas in China um, it then spread out from there into Korea Japan uh, supposedly the name of kombucha comes more from Japan no one quite knows uh, history of it. It went across into into Russia, uh, Ukraine. Our brewing technician is uh, is Ukrainian, and he says, you know, when he first tasted it, he was like, oh my god, this is what my grandmother used to brew, you know, because she used to have a crock pot on the side, and it was tekvas. Um, so kvas is what they uh, have as a uh, as a more bread based uh, fermentation, but they then have tekvas, which is effectively kombucha, and it got across into uh, into Germany as well. Um, so there's you know conversations of uh, back, I think, at the end of the 19th century, where uh, where doctors used to uh, used to um, uh, suggest drinking uh, kombucha or kvass or whatever you know was the time his name at the time for health reasons. Um, so it sort of spread out all across that that area of um, of northern Asia and across into uh, northeastern uh, uh, Europe. But then it got into the United States, and this is sort of where it's become commercialized <clears throat> so it got into the states and and the, in the 60s it was called groovy tea right okay <laughs> so yeah. excuse me <coughs> um uh, yeah groovy groovy tea with the hippies in the in the 60s um and then um the first commercialization of it was done by gt kombucha which is now the biggest uh kombucha brewer in the united states in i think it started about 95 and then it sort of really built up from from there okay amazing you weren't tempted when you did the branding with groovy tea was that, was uh, that on the no, list not, not on a, we're, we're, <laughs> we're focused on quite a different space i'm, I'm sure we'll yeah, talk yeah, about we'll, that and how we, we uh, will without how a doubt we so um, I'm, I'm presuming there's good kombucha and bad kombucha is there what's what's the difference what makes something excellent and something else rubbish uh well well there's 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 good kombucha and bad kombucha probably in the way that one ferments because you know you can have batches that just don't work out but you know anyone can do that you know anyone can have that um you know we will have from time to time a batch we have to dispose of because you know it just doesn't go the way we want it to do um 
difference is if you're home brewing it, you, you know, you are dealing with a complex fermentation. You know, this is potentially three, four, five different yeasts, uh, series of different bacteria in there, uh, and it can create really acidic drinks. It can make things that are, you know, just you know, um, sulfur notes and all sorts of stuff can go on in, in a complex fermentation like that. I mean, look, I've made my own wine and made my own beer at times. I wouldn't sell it. No. <laughs> you know, it's a decent yeah. home brew, but I wouldn't sell it. Um, but um, so we've got, you know, we've got very tight controls of what we do. Um, but there are also, it's not good and bad, but there are different approaches to kombucha also uh, in the market. So the majority of people in the market make a fairly simple um, kombucha base and then they're flavoring it. And so they're putting gingers or turmerics or uh, pomegranate or whatever they, you know, they want to, to flavor up with uh, in order to make something that's more akin to a soft drink, um, but a much healthier Think probably better tasting, less sweet, soft drink. So still great kombuchas, but they're um, a flavoured kombucha. Uh, we, and again because of the um, the way we came into this, we'll talk about that as well. But the way we, um, well, I came into this initially, um, where I came across it much more at the table as a as an alcohol alternative, as an alternative to a sparkling wine. Um, we don't do any flavourings. We all of what we do is in the uh, is in the fermentation of single teas so we select incredible uh, loose leaf teas we um, we brew them hopefully with quite a lot of experience and expertise uh, and so we're drawing out all of those fabulous flavors directly from the tea so if we're getting you know rhubarbs and gooseberry notes that is just from the tea there's no addition to it if you're getting citrus notes or you're getting apple and caramel notes those are just in knowing how to work with these fantastic loose leaf teas in order to generate the same in the same way that you would generate um, green apple notes in wine, you know, the green apple isn't in isn't in the grape, but you're pulling it out in fermentation. Yeah, amazing. I love it as as a concept because yeah, the, you know, I don't know. It's just so much cool stuff about tea. I've done a podcast on on tea, so we won't yeah. go too much into the detail. Or we we might touch uh, touch on it again in a minute. So, so I think it's been an idea. So. Yeah, the idea. You were round at a friend's house. Was it Howard's house? Is that right? Yeah, Howard, right. Howard Napper. And uh, yeah, yeah, so can you just tell the story as to because you weren't, you know, particularly aware of it as a product before that. I don't think we. I had absolutely never heard of it, and it took me a while actually to get you know to get my head around it and understand that it actually was a, a commercial product. Yeah. No, yeah. So great friend of mine, uh, Howard Napper. Um, he is uh, a, a, a yoga guru and an entrepreneur in that space, and um, a publisher and broadcaster. Um, but he's also a, um, you know, he's fanatical about the quality of food and, and wellness and other things. And he's teetotal. And I, about probably three or four years before this, the, the point we're talking about, I'd also pretty much quit alcohol. Um, not completely. I'll have a, a taste of a, of a great glass of wine from time to time just for the flavor, but I don't drink it for the consumption of alcohol. And he'd set out a, a fantastic meal uh, and served me a glass of this very alcoholic smelling stuff with a very you know rich fermented flavors that were coming out of the glass and I went hang on a minute you're teetotal and you, you know I am what are you giving me <laughs> this brew for um he said no no it's not alcoholic um and I was absolutely blown away because now he was brewing with a a, a, a rich oolong and black mix and it that sort of gives you um you know, rich apple, caramel, uh, slightly smoky notes in there. So it was, it was something that was more akin to somewhere that sat between a cider and a beer. And I said, oh my God, that should be on tap in every single pub in the country because you know, that will fill that gap of when I 
was down the pub and wanted a beer and you know a lager sitting in the garden or a great craft ale on a on a uh, on a uh, cold winter's uh, winter's evening um uh, it would fill that same that same gap now i then took some culture home and again all of these things i'm sure and many of the people you've come across in your podcasting days so much of this is um is serendipity but i stuck some silver needle tea in the pot so you know his culture um uh, some silver needle tea that we picked up on a on a trip to Muna uh, in India with the family. Uh, I knew nothing about tea. I didn't know the value of the tea that I was sticking in the pot. Because <laughs> for those that are tea uh, fanatics yeah. out there, will know it's expensive. You know, it's yeah, expensive yeah, it's stuff. Fine, it's fine tea. Um, and I got these incredible notes of rose, vanilla, almond coming out of the pot. Um, better for me than any champagne I'd ever tasted. Now. Wow. I'm not a major champagne fanatic, so I'm not, you know, there are others who will challenge that deeply. But yes, it was just, it was a flavor profile I'd never come across before. And it was, had this delicacy to it. Um, and that got me hooked. And are you doing it at this point just as a matter of interest for your own consumption? Or when you had that first, you mentioned you had that first up and said it should be in every bar. Most people would just say that flippantly. They wouldn't then go off and go, <laughs> I'm going to make sure it is in every bar. When you, when you did it with your first tea, was that, was that thinking, ah, commercial opportunity? Or were you just, no, was not, it a flippant comment? Not at all. It was, it, I mean, the, the, I, well, I think I saw the commercial opportunity for someone yeah. to be doing it in every single That's bar, more normal. pub and bar. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't looking at it at that time as a commercial venture. I was just fascinated. Look, we at home, um, you know, we were chatting about it earlier. But, you know, we we grow a lot of our own. I, you know, in the uh, the late summer months, there's bubbling pots of jam on the side, and I've made my own wines and all sorts. And and so, you know, I enjoy that process of of farm to table, uh, of you know, whether it be cooking or whether it be um, you know uh, uh, jam making chutneys and things like that, or potentially fermenting. Uh, and so it just came from that route. I got really excited about it. And uh, yeah, and I just, I, you know, excited. I say I became passionate. My wife would say obsessive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I think a lot of brewers do. Indeed. Um, but yeah, I mean, went through probably 150 teas. I mean, we, it was, you know, we took over, at first I took over the spare room and it was like, you know, shelves in the spare room and it was just racked, racked, racked with pots. All the teas I could buy online at the time it was just like, what if I put this in? What if I put that in? And tasting it, and you know, was there a, was there a spreadsheet? Was uh, it, were you logging all of this? At the oh, time? We, yeah, logged every single tasting. It wasn't actually on a spreadsheet. I've still got the books here, really? which are oh, you know amazing. tasting notes of every single one of those brews. Over what time period was this? So this was well, in, the initial the initial period was probably about three months. Okay, where I got really excited about it before, and this is where you, you know you asked about the commercialization. I was then in New York on business, and I walked into a Whole Foods. And there was an aisle which was probably two meters high and three, four, five meters wide, just with kombucha in it. Wow. And at that was your point, wife with I you? went, huh? Was your wife with you? Did no. you? Oh, God, I've lost him. <laughs> this is it. She knows me well enough yeah. already. Um, but no, it was, it, it was like, oh, my God, this is not just my little homebrew. Yeah. It's like there's a, there's a business out there. Now, it was all of the flavored kombucha, which was very different to the way I was trying it and tasting it uh, at the time. Um, but yes, it was sudden the realization that, whoa, there is a big commercial market, and you know there were not you know, there were uh, kombucha brewers in the UK at the time, some that had been going for for quite some time, um, but on a, you know not not very visible. I mean, there weren't supermarkets who were selling kombucha at that time, and uh, or pubs or restaurants generally who were were doing it. It was a, a, a much smaller scale uh, activity than it is uh, it is today. But that's what then sparked me into that consideration of. 
I've got this thing that seems to be, you know, it's great flavoured drink that I'm loving and friends are loving drinking. And yeah, I've just got to look at whether there's an opportunity to do this commercially. Amazing. So at the point that you had, whatever you just said, 150 teas or yeah. whatever, and you're logging them all, at this point, this is still just your like your equivalent to jam making, just yeah. a slightly obsessive nature, just a bit of fun. Yeah, not Not a commercial idea. No, it wasn't. That's, uh, that's <laughs> impressive. I remind you, Cam and Sons, um, the aperitif, I remember interviewing the guy then, I think it was either two or three years, but he was trying all of these different, uh, you know, barks and... Uh, I don't know, you know, yeah, juniper, berry, just hundreds and hundreds of different things that he was trying over a period of time. And uh, But yeah, had a spreadsheet, had a log of it all. And again, so you're right, yeah, commonly obsessive. Do you need to get that? Um, okay, so at what point then do you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore this as an actual commercial opportunity? What was the, apart from New York, was there a specific trigger? Um, trigger, I think... It, no, it, it really developed over time, and even quite a long way into this, I don't think I was really looking at it as a, as a, let's say, a proper commercial venture. It was a little bit of a, a, a big hobby. You know, it was, you know, can I, a lifestyle, a lifestyle business, a little business that let's find a little space, buy a few tanks, and uh, put some of this in there, and bottle a bit up, and sell it to local restaurants, and things like this. It was, it was very much in that spirit uh, in the early days. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't until much later that when we actually got out into the market that I started to realise the, the largest, the much larger scale commercial opportunity to it. And that was, that was two years on right. um, you know, okay. from when, we, when I started brewing it at the beginning. I mean, it took us, yeah, it took us two years to get to the point where we actually, actually felt like we had a, a product that was you know, robust um, flavor profiles that we believed in, a range, of branding, all these other things that uh, that we were then excited to then start actually putting it out there in the market. Okay, when did you bring other people on board? Because is it Adrian who's the nutritionist and tea expert that you had on board from uh, fairly? Well, Adrian uh, is a nutritionist, but he was in he was in um, in product development and innovation at Lucas Aid Santori. Okay, so he joined me about. Almost about a year in, right. um, from my beginning of my experimentation, nine months or so um, to a year uh, from my experimentation. So I'd taken it quite a long way in terms of the, uh, of the 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 testing at that point. But when Adrian joined me, we took it to a different bit of a different level in terms of that obsessiveness. Again, uh, you should see some of the uh, the, the uh, sort of text conversations at three in the morning oh. as we're trying to understand the metabolic <laughs> me- metabolic pathways of certain yeasts and things like this. Um, uh, and then John uh, joined us uh, around the same time. So John uh, comes out of marketing, content marketing, etc. But he was also on that front thinking about the marketing positioning of it uh, right. about a year in. Because, it, yeah, it, it strikes me that from fairly early on that this wasn't you know, purely motivated by money. You were clearly trying to develop something amazing because the people that you started to bring in around you were you know, top-notch kind of quality people, presumably, yes, having kiki conversations and text messages at 3 a.m which isn't the same as a as a job is it it's not like oh yeah here's a commercial opportunity it's more like yeah here's an opportunity to make something incredible that becomes a commercial opportunity i suppose yeah and and i've also got to mention in that will battle who was enormously instrumental he's the the tea expert okay so will uh previously the um the lead buyer tea buyer for tata and dow egberts um uh, and is a you know, incredible. He's written the world, literally written the world atlas of tea. Right. Uh, so an incredible uh, base of knowledge. And he was right from the early days. Was you know through met him through friends of friends, um, uh, and he was the one who was providing all these samples to experiment with uh, throughout. Oh, really? um, to uh, you know with with some 
really fascinating and esoteric teas in yeah. in here as well. Um, so no, it, no, it was a it was a great group of people who yeah just became fascinated and passionate about the flavour you could get. You yeah. know, there was, I mean, there was there was a there was a moment, and we still remember. It, you know, um, sorry, January the 9th, twenty seventeen, where we were sitting across the table with a uh, and I won't tell you the particular tea we were drinking, <laughs> but a particular fermentation that, that we'd just done and poured it into a glass. And it was just absolutely mind-blowing. And it's that point where we just went, look, we've got, to, we've, we've got to make this into a business because, again, these flavors that you'd never, I'd never come across before. You know, these were out of a tea, it's what starts as a tea, getting these notes of mango, pineapple, apples, um, you know, as you'll taste in a minute, rhubarb and gooseberry or citrus out of a tea. Yeah, and you just yeah, it became yeah, complete passion project. Amazing, amazing. Well, I'm I'm going to get geeky into how on earth you do that a little bit more in a minute, but yeah. um, I just want to touch on your background because again, most people don't, you know, even even if they take their crazy obsession, don't turn it into a business. But you you come from a uh, a business or entrepreneurial background. I've got to ask because Booking.com, you know, it's the friend or foe of the industry, depending <laughs> on you know, we could we could yeah. probably spend two hours talking about that. Yeah. But in some way, you were involved, right, in the early days. Is that right? Yeah. So I was um, one of the first you know, the guys in the early stage of what was Active Hotels at right. the beginning. Can't call myself a founder because two mates of mine founded it, and I joined just after it uh, back in uh, 1999. So Active Hotels was the precursor to Booking.com. So it was, was bought it? out by Priceline merged with another business and, and it became, you know, Active Hotels is the engine or was, I'm sure the technology's moved on a, a little way in 20 years, uh, but was the engine behind Booking.com. Really? Okay, yeah. so were you with them long? So you were gone before it became Booking.com? Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was with them. Okay, I we can commercial, carry on. The commercial side of it for, uh, uh, for a while uh, and then stepped out to found another business uh, at the time. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, part of that senior team of four who uh, who built the the concept of uh, of active hotels uh, in you know fundamentally the uh, and again it's amazing to look back on it today but you know, back in the day ninety nine if you went to book a hotel uh, in in any sort of digital sense uh, you went to a green screen monitor which was connected into you know one of the uh, GRNs uh, Amadeus I think. And you would have to put it in the code, you know, the, the three-letter code of the hotel group, the three-letter code of the location and the, yeah. the room type. And that was all the information you could get. So the only way you could see that hotel was in a brochure. And the, I mean, it sounds absolutely crazy to anyone listening to this now, but one of the biggest innovations we had is when we went out to sell to the hotels around the country, the sales guy would take a camera with him. And he would take pictures of all the rooms, and he would take pictures all of the uh, of the space, and it was revolutionary because people would go online and they could see the rooms they were booking. <laughs> you know, sounds absolutely mad. Yeah, now. no, it's the level of content we're used yeah. to getting. No, but you're right. Yeah, well, I, I, my hotel's probably 16, 17 years old now, so not long after that that period, I suppose. And you know, one of the reasons we managed to make it a success was definitely because of the internet. We weren't at that time using OTAs; they weren't particularly popular or common but the, just the fact that I could do exactly that I could build yeah. a website and I could uh, yeah show each individual room was amazing and without the internet I don't know how we would have got the sort of you know n at least national recognition and exposure that we got basically so yeah big big period of change big became though I don't know any thoughts I've done a podcast chats but not not a specific one on it and I won't do it now but OTAs I guess have become um 
yeah, friend or foe and a bit of a debate, I suppose. Some of the bigger hotels say, no, actually, it's great because it gives us, you know, massive international exposure very quickly. And then a lot of independents saying, look, you know, they're piggybacking on our name. And actually, you know, even if they type in the name of my hotel, Urban Beach in Bournemouth, mm. probably four or five OTAs come up before I do because they've got, you know, huge marketing budgets and, and taking 15 to 20 percent of the revenue. I said, you know, distant past and so on, on a slight tangent. But any thoughts? Yeah, well, look, I think it's challenging. When we when the internet first came out, we thought it would democratise the world, didn't we? And we now did. we all buy, well, certainly I buy the majority of the things I buy on Amazon. Yeah. So, you know, we've gone from one extreme to the other. Is You know, it's it's opened up an incredible amount of opportunity. You know, the fact that we do enormous business online with Real, um, where, you know, a few years ago, there's how, how the hell would we access people around the country? Not possible. So gives you that democratic uh, uh, side to it. But at some point, if you know, Amazon becomes the leader in non-alcoholic drinks, then we end up selling majority through them. So I think it's a really difficult, um, a real, real challenge. I think at the time we were, we were doing it for all the, uh, the, the right reasons and it was opening up. It was, it was trying to give a voice to the smaller hotel because at the time, you, know, you imagine at the time, um, you could, we, could, we could book a Marriott. You could go into, a, into your local... Um, uh, your local um, travel agent and you could book a Marriott quite easily. If you wanted to book a small hotel in Bournemouth at the time and I was sitting up in Amersham, how the hell do I find out about it? It was really hard. It was in some of the guides or something like that you could find, but it's really difficult to get the information. So so it was a, an incredible revolution for the independent hotel industry at the time, but I can absolutely understand now how that might have swung a little bit yeah, well, it's nuanced, I think. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, uh, uh, 100%. Like all of these things, like I'm the same. I, buy, I begrudge everything that I buy from Amazon, but man, it's so convenient yeah. and easy and good. And there, are, there is an Amazon marketplace now, so I like to think in my dislike deluded world, apart from the fact that Mr. Bezos is always getting a few pence in whatever I'm buying, I'm kind of hoping that there's somebody independent behind that little marketplace yeah. that's selling that stuff. But I do need to look into it more before I convince my kids that they can never use Amazon again and it will yeah. just be another thing scrubbed off the list. So you're, you're kind of... A business journey then into furniture for for 10 years is that right yeah so i founded tom dixon with tom um back in 2002 um and yeah built that ran that for 10 years um so you know built it from from scratch we were you know equal partners in that from the outset uh built it from from scratch uh and yeah i mean i, look, I went into furniture because my father's an architect, brother's an industrial designer. I'd spent my youth making furniture. I was always passionate about design and, and furniture and interiors. Uh, and I met Tom, and it was sort of a, um, you know, he was doing a load of stuff um, on the side. And I was like, why don't we why don't we try and create something more structured in, in this? And uh, yeah, it was a great ride. Had a, had a great time and turned it obviously into quite a... We say, uh, obviously, strong. people might not know. So, yeah, how, how big a business did that turn into? Then? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it sold in, I think, 62 countries at the point where we uh, where I, I parted ways with the business. Um, uh, you know, good, big business in, in, the, in the United States, uh, you know, most countries across Europe, all the way across Asia. So, yeah, no, it's uh, built it into a, into a good business. But, you know, not, not an IKEA type of business because we're talking about, um, you know, avant-garde, uh, furniture, which has its own its own place uh, and its own its own scale, but uh, no, you know, a, a good business. Yeah. yeah, you always work at speed. That was ten years, did you say? You went yes. from nothing to sixty-two countries. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You should talk <laughs> to my team. I should talk uh, to my team about. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a lot more hours in the day than a normal human being? Or? We tend to. Yeah, we do tend to move things at a bit yeah. of pace. But okay. yeah, because 
because I get excited about it. It's, it is a passion. All of these things. Um, all right, Active Hotels, I joined as a, I didn't found it. I joined as a secondary person in it. Um, but everything else I've done since has been about passions. Right. Uh, and I think it's, that's what drives me, motivates me, keeps me going yeah. uh, day to day. So is kombucha, is that your full-time thing now? Or have you got other, what, what were you doing when this started a few years ago? Yeah, so I, uh, well, from Tom Dixon, I, I then founded another company called um, Magic, well, Magic Town. We merged it with another business. That was in kids' educational technology. Again, passion, had young kids. The iPad yeah. came out, saw what they were able to achieve on it and went, God, we've got to do something that's more educational because they were just playing stupid games. So that took me down that route, did that for a few years. Uh, sold that into uh, into another business, uh, and then um, yes, I was I was involved in a few other businesses, but just on the on the side at that point, um, as uh, you know, board investing a little bit of money in them. Um, when I discovered kombucha, okay, so, hence um, you could spend three months trying 150 different yeah. teas. It's dangerous. I imagine time is not something that people should give you too much of because uh, yeah, never never know what might crop up, <laughs> what, what what the next idea will be. Um, okay, so so with that backdrop then of of plenty of experience, you then fall in love with kombucha, see the opportunity that it could be a thing, go off and explore the market, and this whole kind of sober curious thing then that's going on what what's actually going on out there and this is one of the key reasons why i wanted to come and chat yeah. to you is yeah there seems to be a a big movement in low booze or booze free what's going on right well and, I, and I, at first i say i would love to say that i developed this with a strategic intent to because i knew the market was moving in a particular way absolute rubbish you know none of that at all we've just we've we've been enormously lucky that we've slotted into a particular moment in time uh, where this consumer uh, change is happening, um, but no, it's it, it, dramatic changes. So uh, when you know, if you go back, if you look at the stats from uh, from back in mid late two thousand, so sort of two thousand seven or so, you were looking at teetotalism uh, probably in the range of sixteen to eighteen percent in the UK, sort of across the age group, and it might have just gone over into the into the low you know low mid twenties for the uh, the sixteen to twenty four age group. Now that's around 35% for 16 to 24 age group, and we're, cl we're getting close to that sort of 25 to 30% across the age groups. Mm -hmm. Dramatic change. I mean, this is 10 years. This, and this is not through any particular government policy or anything. It is just we're, re we're recognizing what alcohol is doing to us. We have become much more aware of health and wellness. I think there's also a little bit of that Instagram. Um, you know, we don't particularly really want to be seen, uh, you know, falling over <laughs> outside a pub. We'd rather be showing our best life on a on it's a plate. Point, yeah. The fact that everyone's got a camera in their pocket—that's yeah. probably, isn't it? We used to be able to get away with that kind of stuff. Whereas now, yeah, you know, you're gonna somebody's got evidence. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think it's I think it's more driven by the by our much greater understanding, our much greater drive towards health and wellness uh, in general. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not just the teetotalism because we you know we don't we're not. Um, evangelistic about quitting alcohol completely. I will have a small glass of wine from time to time because I just love the flavour of it. Um, but it's um, but it's also if you look at the people who, again in the same time frame, sort of 20, 2007, 2017, that would say they were daily drinkers before. In our age group, our, our focus age group, which is that sort of twenty five to forty four age group, it went from about fourteen fifteen percent down to about six percent that would consider themselves daily drinkers. And again, staggering, less than half 
in the say in the space of uh, of ten years. And I, I you know I've been worked in a lot of different consumer sectors over the years, and I've never seen that pace of change, uh, apart from maybe when you know technology, a big technology change has happened. Um, so yes, and and that has therefore driven this enormous evolution of that yeah sober curiosity. Um, uh, you know, well, we talk about what we consider uh, a modern drinker. So we're not we're not talk necessarily talking about you know let's say in the food world you'd be talking about vegetarian or veganism versus veg centric. You know, it, it, for us, it, you know, being sober versus being a modern drinker. So you're actually uh, and there are lots of fun t terms out there, but more about being drinking in moderation and and maybe you will drink on a. Friday night and on a Saturday night, maybe you'll have a blowout from time to time, but you know that Sunday morning is going to be a complete write-off. Mm. Um, but it's the flexitarian know. of drinking, kind Actually, of thing. Absolutely, it's kind of going. Yeah, I might, I might not. It's yeah, uh, yeah depends on depends on how I feel. Because I'm sure you've seen that in the you know in the restaurant world, an enormous change in that food. World. Yeah, wise, um, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and in some ways, you know, felt faddish a few years ago with some of the kind of gluten stuff where there was clearly a genuine you know gluten issue for some people um, but for, for a lot of people they weren't and and, and I was definitely very uh, anti the anger levels of vegetarians who would get very upset yeah. if uh, if my menu didn't have enough you know there was never enough vegetarian food and if I'd missed off the V and they couldn't see that it, it, it was vegetarian you know they'd be very cross with me and I'd be like well I don't put M for meat and F for fish we just kind of put the description in um but now the the plant based movement, yeah, all the all the flexitarianism huge, and and probably, yeah, like just an understanding thing, I guess, a bit like alcohol, I suppose, isn't it? Now we yeah. understand the the health implications with food, you know, a lot more of us understand the environmental implications as much as anything, I think, and yeah. and, yeah, and animal implications. Say again, and health implications in food as well. Hundred percent. You know, yeah, 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 totally, yeah, and and animal welfare and and, and some of that yeah. is is definitely uh, relevant. But I think yeah, the, the the big changes come around yeah health and 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 definitely environmental impact. But yeah. that's a whole you know a whole other world. But I'm envious because you've got a huge garden where you grow lots of your yeah. stuff, and even a woods <laughs> where you get mushrooms. So you're ahead of me again. Regular listeners will know that I my my lockdown project was building a kitchen garden, ah, and I was with uh, Ollie Hudson actually last week, who is uh, Robin Hudson's son from yeah. the Pig. Yeah. Um, who's their head gardener across the yeah. group. So I had a fascinating chat with him. That's not gone out yet. And I was with uh, Gary Jones at Le Manoir um, a few weeks ago yeah. where he showed me around their kitchen garden and stuff. Beautiful. So, and that's yeah. a bowing. Oh, that's just... Both, both of those they set a bar. staggering. Yeah, they are. But the Le Manoir one in particular just sets the bar so high that, that nobody can ever get yeah. close, I don't think, in that seed to plate. No. Kind of like literally outside the window yeah. scenario. And, and yeah, yeah, Gary... And, and, and you know, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely passionate i would never pretend to be in the same <laughs> world as as they are but absolutely passionate about about that and you know so you know we we've got a great vegetable garden forage mushrooms we've got our own chickens fruit cages all those sort of things because it, being able to uh produce something that is all natural and put that on the plate and you know for me it's passionate about being able to do that for the kids you know i've got young kids and all right i'm i'm sort of Get to the, I say the end of it, so, you know, uh, the wrong side of fifty, just, um, and so you know maybe maybe my um, you know cells have been already built and you know, but for the, for the, you know, for young kids, you know, you've got to provide them with that quality of sustenance because that's what's building their bodies, that's what's building their brains. Yeah, is that easy? I've got so I've got an eleven-year-old and a thirteen-year-old, and trying to get them to focus on nutrition, health, you know, any anything apart from taste, and ideally eating crap, is a real bloody challenge. And I'm kind of hoping that I might be at the 
the sort of the trigger point. I was trying to remember, I was chatting to my son yesterday and I was trying to remember when I got into kind of fitness and health. And probably at secondary school, you start doing a few more yeah. sports. Maybe you get a little bit more competitive. Your body's changing and maybe you realise, but yeah, your kids were a little bit older, I think. Was there? No, were they, no, no, well, 15 as well. Oh, really? So yeah, okay. pretty much the same. Are they, are they interested in you telling them that they eat, you know, what, you, know you are what you eat, I suppose? Or do they still want a portion of chips? Uh, Just ask, ask well, me for a friend. We all, we all want a portion of chips. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, look, I mean, my, my wife is French as well, and obviously, you know, yeah. we know the the depth of the the, the food culture in France. So um, they've not been able to get away with it. Yeah. You know, so from a very early age, they've been forced to eat their vegetables and uh, and, and you know and seen the growing of them and the cooking of them and and they, so so. Um, we're we're very lucky, but it's a it's luck through quite a right. lot of pain at some point of you know young kids throwing food across the room. Going, I won't eat this, yeah. uh, but uh, no, they they I'm you know I'm, I'm impressed. They're they're pretty good about it, and also they are. Um, yeah, one of the dogs. There's two dogs in here, and uh, yeah, one 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 wants to go out. <laughs> I don't think you'd see mine again if you let him yeah. out. They wouldn't know. He's not not used to having many acres of uh, freedom. But no, no, they're they're, they're really uh, they're really good about their food, and and actually, my daughter, who's twelve, has become quite a budding chef. Um, mm. And it's you know, interestingly that you know, particularly through lockdown, because we were at home, we had the food rotor in the family. We all had two days that we had to uh, prepare food. I know that doesn't add up to set to eight, but between <laughs> between us, um, and my daughter really just became absolutely passionate about it. Um, and so you know that. That understand, I think that understanding of uh, of the food coming out of the garden because we are, you know, we're planting it, we're growing it, we're digging it, um, uh, and and cutting and preparing and, and eating. I think that whole process gets them so much closer to food, yeah. uh, and therefore they understand they understand much more the importance of it at that point. Uh, yeah. I think no, it's, it's much harder to do that when you're just walking down to the supermarket and picking something off the shelf. 100%. Maybe I'm a little bit um, over-optimistic in year one of my new kitchen garden because I haven't got the yeah. kids going out there. I, in my head now, your children are really excited to get up in the morning and go outside and pick some beetroot and dig up some leeks and make dinner, whereas mine are like, yeah, I'm going on the Xbox, Dad. Good luck. It's cold. It's raining. I'm like, yeah, fine. I'll walk the dog. I'll dig up the bloody plants. Um, uh, I'm a bit more... I mean, <laughs> the honesty, the, 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 the reality is... It's a bit more in your camp. They may understand it, but I still end up doing most of the work. <laughs> okay, good. You're making me feel slightly better. So um, there's a big market, as you said, you were lucky, but you decided then to, to get in on this market and to go in at the, at the premium end, really. So this is about providing an alternative that's not somebody having a lemonade or a Coke. So yeah, talk to me about what the, the, the product then and what you've created and now you've got it in a, in a champagne bottle. So yeah, where, where were you, you know, who were you aiming at, I suppose? Who's the human being sat in that bar or restaurant that you want to get into this? Well, and again, you know, I, again, I'd love to say this is all, you know, a, a major, a great master plan that we just delivered on. I think in, in any entrepreneurial business, you, uh, uh, you are blown by the winds and you learn as, uh, as you gain experience. And, you know, although well, Adrian came out of innovation in drinks, but we, none of us really knew much about the drink industry, drinks industry uh, prior. But so, look, we, 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 would, we developed a drink which we had, as I said, a, a passion for. It would, you know, flavor profiles we were really excited by. Um, and it sat very much, very clearly to us as a non-alcoholic alternative. Now, the challenge was a bit, you know, where in that non-alcoholic alternative fit? Clearly, we're not a spirit, but we're, we're not wine, are we? Or we're not a beer? Or we're not, you know, we're, we're, it's not a clear uh, slot that you, you fit into at the time. 
So when we first went out in the market, because kombucha was a very hipster drink, East, you know, we ended up in a lot of East London, East London pubs and bars because that was the easy first, uh, first access. The real turning point, though, came when we started to get picked up by some of the uh, top restaurants uh, across the country. So, you know, Melania, who is the sommelier at the Fat Dark, when she discovered us at the restaurant show 2017, um, she said to me, look, you know, I think you've got, you know, an extraordinary product here uh, and potentially one of the best non-alcoholic drinks in the world. Um, and for coming wow. from someone like that mm. was really quite, I mean, it was... It was it was exhilarating, also enormously um, challenging because suddenly you've got the pressure on because it's like we've got to we've got to create this constantly at this level. Wow. Um, um, but we got you know so we got into places like the Fat Duck, uh, Sat Baines, Nathan Outlaw, um, uh, uh, things like you know, Hand of Flowers, um, uh, Gavroche. Uh, I mean, you know, it goes on and on and on. We 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 ended up in fifty to sixty Michelin starred restaurants. I was reading yesterday, and the number kept getting bigger because I think the first number I read was in thirty in over yeah. thirty Michelin starred restaurants, and then later it was then I got to sixty, and I was like, wow. So it was just yeah, clearly yeah. it was. It must, I mean, be, it must we, be in all of them by now. Well, I'm not sure. Well, right now I don't know. I don't know wow. how yes. many it's in. Um, but uh, uh, and it, you know, some you know, we've we've lost. Well, some of the hours have lost stars and we've gained some once. You know, I don't know, I don't know the exact numbers now, but um, but we got picked up by that space, that by that world. And um, and you know, many of them would say to us, you know, one, they had a passion for the drink. Two would say to us, You are the only non-alcoholic drink that pairs well with food. And again, for me, that was quite a I was like, really? Is that true? You know, and we start to look around and then you realise. Most, well, either it's a water, which doesn't amplify food, it's sweet, uh, and therefore it cloys the taste buds, which, which kills flavor. So anything that's sweet will, will detract from food. Um, uh, and so there was very little, yeah, I mean, we, we struggled to find other things that were, were good food pairing. And, and it, it, it's particularly the acidity and the, that, those complex uh, products of fermentation that drive that in the same way that a wine will drive that in, in, uh, in food pairing. Um, uh, we also heard from a lot of them saying, well, we don't hold bottled non-alcoholics because we will make our own to fit alongside. So we became the only bottled non-alcoholic in, in many of these restaurants. Um, and yeah, so that really sort of kicked off our, our route into and our understanding of the fact that we are, we are a non-alcoholic wine. Mm. You know, we're not made out of grape, um, but... You know, wine doesn't have to be made out of grape either. You could make apple wine, or you could make we make medlar wine at home from time to time. Like this. Um, uh, and so it gave it gave us this greater clarity of the space we we sat into. And as you say, we're now um, bottled in a in a champagne bottle, and it it, it gave us that confidence to sort of move up yeah. into that world. Yeah. Um, so you're aiming at people who might have been having a bottle of prosecco or a bottle yeah. of sav blanc or something like that, and saying, look. You know, either you're health conscious or you just fancy something different or you're driving or whatever and you want it to sit alongside that. Feels like a good time to try it because I've been yeah. I've been holding back. I've got two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> let's let's open the uh, open the bottle. Yeah. So it is in uh, a, a yeah, it does look like a proper uh, proper yeah. champagne bottle, cool. proper cool. cork okay. and everything. Yeah. Bit 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 of theatre. So which one's this is your Royal Flush? So right? this we're going to um, taste first the, uh, the Royal Flush. So um I will, so let me, I'll just take you through quickly what that is. So yeah. Royal Flush is made out of a first flush Darjeeling tea. So, you know, we we'll talk a little bit about the speciality of the tea in a moment, but the uh, um, first flush Darjeeling tea. So it's literally the first two tips of tea picked in spring. 
Okay. So as the bud and the first leaf emerge, right at the beginning of the picking season, you pick that bud out, um, you dry it very quickly. So it's technically a black tea, um, but um, it's, uh, it's got characteristics more akin to a white tea. We work with one specific tea garden. I have tasted through, I don't know, 40, 50 different tea gardens. Um, I believe on their you. first flushes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, to, to find the particular tea garden we work with. Um, and we pick particular day's picks. So whereas a winemaker might, might, might be looking at you know, just a particular parcel, we're down to the days on which we pick. Wow. You so did this. This is in China. You were. This is in Darjeeling. In Darjeeling, sorry, India. India. Yeah. Okay. So you went over there. And when you say... No. A, you know, we get samples sent okay, to us, so out. they send us. So they say, well, it's called so it's called invoices. So day one will be invoice one, day two will be invoice two, day mm-hmm. three will be invoice three, and those are the days of the picks. Oh, wow. So we will then sit down and we will taste our way through. But now we start we start on around invoice ten because anything earlier than that is a bit too green for us, um, and we will taste up to about invoice thirty thirty five. And, and when you're tasting this, so this isn't by. The whole process is a bit like coffee. Is it with a sort of green cupping kind of scenario? How are you tasting it? You're not fermenting it each time. We're not just... fermenting it. So, yeah. well, so we start off by tasting the teas. So I think now, you know... I'm just getting, as in the I, actual leaves themselves or with hot water or whatever. Yeah, making a, making making a, a tea. cup of tea. Gotcha. Um, so a particular grammage of tea goes yep. into the cup. Yep. A particular weight yeah. of water goes in and steep for a particular amount of time to then uh, be able to taste. So you've got a base point, a bit yeah. like the coffee cupping process. Yeah, then basically. Same, same thing. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I started when I started this, I knew nothing about tea. Yeah. But Will has been a primary educator in this. But uh, you know, one of the greatest things that, well, certainly Will's ever said to me was he's like, uh, in first last Jeeling, I think you've now surpassed me in your understanding and your palate for it because literally you know, we're picking out those differences between one invoice and the other which is one day to the next of that's pick, amazing isn't it? to notice how that's going to affect the flavor that we get out of our, See, this our is what i love this is what i love when people get that geeky and it obsessed is, it's it's awesome well in, in this year it was, it was um you know usually we set it out here and we've got the team around and we'll taste it of course this year we were in the midst of lockdown because right. the uh, the samples were with us in I'm guessing probably in april um but yeah big long table in the kitchen at home, set out with, I probably had 45 different teas that I was tasting at the time, all from, well, the two tea gardens that are owned by the same guy that are next to each other. So effectively, you know, one tea garden, but they're, they're name split. And 45 different teas wow. from, of just first flush Darjeeling from that one particular That's incredible. Do they... Uh, site. Yeah. And, and they've got lots of customers who, who are specific about the day that the tea was cut or is that fairly exceptional this is the only ever used in high-end products then this particular yeah I mean, first much Darjeeling tea is a is a high-end tea to start with um I, I mean people will no people will taste um across invoices and they will select the one that, that they want because you sell by invoice because you know a sack of tea will be from a particular invoice right um so you are tasting those things so um no i mean a a uh, particular tea sommelier in a particular, you know, in a ho- hotel might, well, might they get to that level? Uh, probably not. It's probably the, the tea merchants who are pro- more likely to be at that level yeah. to, the, you know, to then be, you know, they, they know what their customers are looking for and then they they are selecting on that on that basis. Um, no, we're we're a bit. <laughs> 
This We're is, a bit obsessive. This now. is why the world of food and drink is so exciting, though, isn't it? Because you can't get that excited about a print cartridge. Can you? What day did you make that print cartridge? You know, who gives a toss? But the fact that, yeah, I mean, you, and, and you would pick up the nuances literally from one day. Because yeah. I imagine you pick up day two, or like you say, you start on day 10, and day, two, day, yeah. day 35 might be very different. I'd love that if they could say, right, what day was this picked? And then you'd be able to go, ah, yes. I think, the... struggle, I think I'd struggle <laughs> to do a blind taste and say that was done on a particular day. But no, look, we, we're more, I mean, look, within, within, so the way it works is in, in a garden, uh, they will pick a certain parcel on day one. They move on to the next parcel, day two, next parcel, day three, etc. until they come round the circle and they come back to the beginning again and they pick that parcel. Now in our, um, in the, the particular garden we buy from, I think it's 11 parcels before they come round to the beginning. So you could have 11, uh, yeah, so ninth it's, parcel, invoice four or whatever, or do they do no, the, no, the no, invoices? It's, it's, so it's invoice one starts on parcel one and invoice two, invoice three, et cetera. Right. So, they're going around. Okay. so you've got a combination of the, de- of the day yeah. and the parcel that is being picked oh. as it moves around. So, so and, and you remember, you know, so this is, this is a tea garden that is facing Kanchenjunga. So it's in the foothills of the Himalayas, facing Kanchenjunga. It's a north-facing tea garden, which is important for us because it helps the quality of, of first flush. Because if you get south-facing slopes in, in, uh, in Darjeeling, you get the, uh, the sun burn, uh, so the, the leaf grows faster. Um, uh, and so it's less good for first flush. It's also the nature of the soil. It's, the terroir is, mm-hmm. is, is yeah. just as important as in, as in wine. Rainfall, you know, you get microclimates on particular slopes and areas and things, so the rainfall will have an impact. So, um, so it's a combination of all of these different things, but more or less, we're, we're more or less go, uh, picking between, try, trying to find out where the start point is, where it's not too green, where you're starting to see these fruity notes coming out through the tea, but the longer you leave it, it becomes too brown. It becomes too black. You know, you, you know the, the tea is, and you know, we should be sitting another time. We'll sit down and we'll actually do the tea tasting yeah. as well. Um, but um, uh, it, it's not it, in time. A Darjeeling tea and a second or third flush will just be like a. It, it's it's more fruity than say an Assam, which is a much richer, uh, full-bodied black. Um, but it's still got some fruitiness in it, but it's much more of a t- typical black tea. You know, we we're used to drinking Darjeeling teas in England. You know, it's a it's a typical black tea, um, even though it's slightly lighter than Assam. Um, whereas the first flush is is light. It's really fruity. It's really delicate, and it's we're picking the point at which we start to lose some of that because in fermentation, whereas and we'll taste now. Yes. But whereas we are looking for these notes of rhubarb, gooseberry, and white peach, we're getting in the fermentation. Um, if we go too black, you start noting apple notes and caramel notes coming through. So if you if you ferment a, a full Darjeeling tea, a, 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 say a third flush, a, a really rich black tea, um, then you will have something that visually is not sort of looking at the colour, which is sort of quite champagne esque um, in look and colour. Uh, you will have something that is much more of an amber liquid, right? So much more akin to a cider. Mm. Okay. So, no. We go. Perfect. Thank you very much. Ah. Fizzier than I was expecting. Is that can you can you have an impact on that as well? The, the level of yes. Yeah, so we, we there is a certain level of carbonation comes out. Carbonation. In the, that's the word. In the um, uh, the the brewing, but we will always post carbonate um, yeah, right. um, to ensure that you pick up the 
uh, the, the, you know, to get a, an even level of carbonation. So right. you should be noticing some rhubarb yeah. in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you get a white peach back note. And interestingly, I mean, again, you've learned so much about these, the relationships between flavors in your mouth. So when we're fermenting, we, it starts off tasting like tea. Yeah. But we, we add our mother to it. And so you get some acidity in there. And then over time, those, um, those fruit notes start to build and you start picking up this peach note. You get this sort of quite pronounced white peach. And then as the acidity builds, it switches over into rhubarb. So actually, white peach and rhubarb are very, very similar flavors. And it's just the level of acidity that pushes it into that rhubarb flavor versus a white peach flavor. Um, because that's the way the tongue is picking it up. Mm. And you can see that in that, in that evolution of flavor in the, in the tank. Yeah. Yeah, it always amazes me because, you know, same with wine tasting, is that as soon as somebody, because I'm a particularly impressive palate to pick these up, but as soon as somebody says something, you're like, yeah, that's right, yeah, rhubarb. Actually, on the nose, it smells, that's where you get the real tea kind yeah. of aroma, I would say. Yeah. It smells like a tea. Yeah, so it's, you know, we, we, at the end of this, we'll be about 2 to 3% sugar. Okay. But there's, it's, you know, it's quite a sweetness in, mm. the, in the drink, but yep. it's only 2 to 3% sugar. So, again, that's predominantly the esters of fermentation that give you those fruity notes. You know, when you, when you get a, um, uh, when you eat a, uh, a pear drop, so I'm just going back to yeah. certainly my youth in, uh, in sweets, but, you know, you, drink, you eat a pear drop, that is an ester that is, uh, is producing those flavors. A lot of in, in, in sweets and confectionery, it's primarily, you know, esters that are used in, in flavorings to give banana flavors and things like this. And that's what is produced in, in fermentation. The yeast is producing those, uh, those compounds and gives you those fruit, fruity notes. Yeah. But it's basing, you know, the different flavor that it produces is depending upon the proteins and the, uh, the minerals and other things that are coming through in the tea. So yeah. you've got a combination of the, the flavors of the tea themselves and then the compounds that are present in the tea that then are broken apart and evolved and, and, and metabolized by the yeast to produce other flavors. So, you know, the, the breadth of flavor you can produce in kombucha can be, I mean, you're tasting rhubarb and gooseberry here. We've gone from, I mean, I, I've brewed things where I picked it up and I've drunk it and I said, I have to believe that I'm drinking straight mango juice, pure and simple mango really? juice or pure and simple pineapple. Apples are very, you know, big in, in when you're fermenting black teas, you tend to get really strong apple. I mean, um, one that we used to produce, we uh, dropped out in order to bring in our new iron goddess, uh, the smokehouse. Everybody thought they were drinking a cider. I mean, you, you know, I've actually had a, a Normandy cider producer go, no, no, that is a cider. You're, there's no way you're making that from tea. Um, because you're producing these really strong apple and caramel notes that you're expecting to see. Yeah. And you can, you know, that can go from citrus, dry dragon, we'll try in a minute, it's got lemon, uh, grapefruit notes in it. Um, so there's an enormous range of different flavors you can get. So it, you get this complexity from the, the, the tea, the fruity flavors you come out, um, and also, you know, all, all sorts of other compounds. So, you know, one of the labs we work with, when he, um, they are experts in, in flavor, um, and when he first tasted our Royal Flush, he called me up and said, it's unbelievable. You've got flavor notes in here, which you only get in, um, in Sauvignon Blanc wine, because it's a particular compound that's present in Sauvignon Blanc grape that in, under yeast action, it breaks this complex compound apart and releases a, a simpler molecule, which we notice particularly as a flavor compound from Sauvignon Blanc. And he's like, you've got it in here and I've never seen it anywhere else in the world. Wow. 
So there's all sorts of stuff you can mm, get coming out. Amazing. That is lovely. And, and yeah, it's crazy that I've not tried it because you're right. I can see that. I would perfectly happily enjoy that over a meal. Really lovely and light and fresh. Yeah, and with some complexity of flavour. I suppose I've only ever seen it either in a kind of health drink department and it's got, yeah, ginger or turmeric or something like that in it and I've just not fancied it. But yeah, it's definitely more sophisticated. So Dry Dragon is basically a different... Where, where's the tea from for this one then? So Dry Dragon is a Dragonwell green tea, right? So it's a, what's called pan-fired green tea from central China. So if you go a couple of hours um, west from Shanghai, you get to Hangzhou. Hangzhou is on the side of um, West Lake. On the other side of West Lake is a place called uh, Longjing, which translates to Dragonwell. Okay. Uh, and this is the source of what is considered the best green teas out of China. Um, now, difference between so a, a green tea. Um, yeah, I'm sure you can't, you understand this, but you know, green tea needs to be within 30 minutes of taking the leaf off the tree, off the plant. It needs to be uh, fired in some way in order to keep that greenness in, like blanching a vegetable. Whereas black teas are then rolled and, uh, and oxidized over a certain amount of time before they're baked to, um, to lock those flavors in. So you're, you're starting the enzyme action uh, in a black tea, that, like cutting an apple, where you get that browning or a leaf drops from the tea, tree and it, and it browns. So um, in China, they will bake tea in order, to, um, in order to blanch it. Whereas in Japan, they will steam it. So the difference, you know, Japanese green teas have got that very grassy note. You taste, it tastes quite like you're tasting cut grass and grass, cut grass smells to it. Whereas um, Chinese green teas will tend to be much more um, uh, straw or hay. And particularly when, with, with this one, which is, so they take big wads of tea, wipe them around the inside of a wok. Literally, you've got a guy there with a wok with big gloves on. And he is wiping them around the inside of the wok to fire it. Um, to, to bake in that flavour. And that role in the tea garden is that it's like, it's like the um, glass blower. You know, you, you work up to the, the guy who's blowing the glass on his, uh, on his pedestal and he's being served by all the minions running around. This is the guy in the, tea, in the, in the Longjing who is um, the, the baker, the firer of, uh, of the tea. Um, because that, the, the amount that he fires the tea really defines the flavour that gets into the tea. And so... Uh, he's got an incredible skill in just firing it just right. Okay. And you can see the difference between a fired, hand-fired teas and baked teas, because you know, in mass production, they are then put into a big drum, effectively with hot air pushed push, mm. push through it, because the tea is a flat spear. Uh, and so that shows you that it's been pressed down onto the inside right. of the wok okay. into in firing. Uh, and a bit like a coffee roaster, I suppose, where actually... You know, there's either a perfect point, or actually, it just depends on whether you want a slightly, you know, hotter, richer, whatever. You change the flavour profile. Is that the same there? Actually, is is there just a perfect sweet spot, or actually, would you do something slightly different depending on what you wanted, even at that stage? Well, we, and it, you know, what I'm, what I'm really looking forward to in the future. Um, you can see my, I got uh, a big grin on my face. Yeah, <laughs> is when we actually get out into the tea gardens and we start affecting that part of the process. Because mm. at the moment, so. Um, we, we are only selecting from stuff that they do. We're not yeah. determining what they do yep. um, at that level. Um, and you know, what is really exciting is when we can get out into the tea gardens and start to actually develop our own teas. I don't think I'm ever going to buy a, 
buy a plot of land and start growing growing our own teas. But <laughs> certainly in terms of the processing of it, the, the primary processing of it, because yes, you can do all sorts of different things with the um, with that primary tea that will then affect the flavour. So if we want to get, rather than sitting down there with <clears throat> you know, 50 teas in front of us and trying to select out and, and you know, Often you will get, I mean, we get stuff that tastes fantastic, but often you're there going, oh, but if only it had a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. But now I think we're at the stage with our, with our understanding of how the tea affects the final kombucha in production uh, and our palates are good enough to be able to detect those, little, those fine little notes that come out of the tea. Then we can go back into the process and say, look, let's just fire a little bit further. And we then mm. get a little bit more nuttiness mm. in there. Or let's take it a little bit earlier and then before we make it cleaner. Uh, or we add a, you know, we, we take our first flush and we, we, um, we're processing that in, a, you know, a little bit lo- longer oxidation or a little bit shorter oxidation or, you know, these sort of things which would just pull out, pull out particular notes in the final drink. Yeah, exciting, isn't it? It must be a bit frustrating that um, you go to all that effort and notice all these notes, but I suppose it's the same in wine, isn't it? And then you watch somebody else drink and they've got no bloody idea that I rubbed it around that pan an extra four times. Well, I think, look, I think there's a, there's a balance here. Obviously, the, look, I, look, you can see I'm really deeply passionate about what we do and what you can achieve with this fermentation, the nature of what we're doing. Um, there are a lot of people who think of a kombucha as, oh, it's just a, you know, a ginger drink. And that's fine. There's, that, there's, there's an absolute space for that, and I'm an m- enormous protagonist of that because that will encourage people to have, consume less sugar, healthier, um, healthier digestion. Uh, great. But yes, I mean, there are moments w- where I get frustrated when people just go, oh, you're a kombucha, and, and it's assumed that it's in that sort of soft drink territory. Um, because, and this is where I think the non-alcoholic market is getting much better at it, and there are some great protagonists now, you know, from the likes of Ben and with Seedlip or Luke with Lucky Saint and other people, um, you know, in the, in the spirits, in beers, and where the, you know, train educating people on that, the origin story, you know, um, which we're used to doing in, in alcoholic drinks. I mean, good to say, you know, you, you buy a Laphroaig and you're buying it, well, certainly I am, I don't know with everybody, but, you know, you're buying as much into... Uh, the fact that it's an islay and you understand the the peat and the water and you know you understand all that background when you're buying it and when you're drinking it and so a big part of your appreciation of it comes from the understanding of that origin story mm. yeah um, it's true in mm. soft drinks obviously it doesn't because mm. all you're doing is taking some syrup sticking it in a you know in a pipe with a bunch of carbonation and stick it into a, into a glass yeah uh, sorry volume soft drinks there are mm. some great um, you know quality soft soft um, uh, craft soft drinks now that have got a, a very different approach to it um, but we're doing something that yes is is at least at the level of fine wines and we just need to make sure that we can communicate that now ultimately if someone sits down to a I don't know a Chassin Morachet and just loves it for the flavour great that's, that's, that's fine you don't need to have been there on the vineyard and understood how they're picking and got to know the winemaker but at least they appreciate the enormous amount of care and attention has gone into the, produ- the production of something of that level. And that's all I, you know, we're trying to do is, is, is make people understand that that's, we go through the same level of passion uh, to produce this. If we get the, you know, a proportion of people who want to become as geeky about it as we are, 
that's fantastic as well. Yeah, you need the bar guys to get on in, in the same way that uh, cocktail competitions is what it reminds me of, I suppose, when the guys are talking about the history of the product and they really bring a cocktail to life, which they'll do quite easily over the bar or even at the table, particularly now because you've got to sell it at the table. Um, yeah, you, you need that last sort of point of contact person, I guess, to bind to. But I could see myself bringing my bar team up here and, you know, they'd be mm. super excited in the same way they are about coffee, to be fair. Yeah. Tea's been interesting because less so, although a couple of I mentioned Canton tea earlier. Uh, so some of my guys have been on the sort of tea sommelier course with them now. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, I guess it's just curiosity, really, in hospitality. There is, there is, there is this never-ending journey of learning that you can go on. Um, but this is, you know, you know, bang on i suppose isn't it in, in in a really sort of sweet spot sector and and you found yeah phenomenal product haven't you and something quite different is there anybody else is there any competitors in this sector this sort of natural tasting or you know the, the fine dining-esque kombucha um there are there are certainly others who are not flavoring right. uh, in the market um you know we <laughs> hopefully <laughs> we we're the better, we're the best of, of the of lot, but you know it's everyone, everyone to their own uh, their own opinions on it. Uh, but we're not so so we're certainly not the only ones out there. Um, but we certainly, you know, I'm sure I'm sure others will, you know, um, you know have a passion for what, what they do. We're certainly very obsessive, uh, and, and our focus is about how do we ensure that we just constantly improve what we're doing and, and to get, you know, we, yeah, we, we don't, don't pretend uh, here. We want to be the best, um, mm. the best in flavor. Uh, and, and not just here in the UK, we want to be the best globally um, in as the, the best tasting drink that you can find that sits in this space. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll fight hard to I don't keep doubt for a second that you'll achieve that yeah. because of what you've achieved with um, yeah, t 10 years of furniture and, and what you've achieved in fundamentally three years of this drink. So is there something that you've learned in this your entrepreneurial journey, I suppose, that you've brought to this, which, which, which gives you that, that speed, the, the exposure that you've got to all of these different restaurants you know what what is it that you do that you presumably isn't just to this business that you've brought to other businesses that that take them on a trajectory um that's that's a successful and b fast i suppose goodness me um tough question um huh. oh really you, you know you're, you're, you're really stuck me now um no, i think there are a few i think there are maybe a few parts to this um one is you you know you can you can see my passion and and slight you know, as my wife would say, obsession in this. Um, uh, when I get into something, I get really deep into it. Um, and I'm a bit of a dog with a bone. It's like, I'm not going to give up. It's, you know, um, it's been a, you know, we've, God, there have been problems along the way. We've failed on things. We've had, yeah, yeah, all sorts of things have happened. Um, but we just keep on fighting through it and coming out the other end when maybe, maybe some other people would have, would have given up. So I think, you know, it starts with that, that real passion for the product, um, and, uh, and and never never being willing, never never willing to say accept second best or, or going that's good enough. No, unless unless I'm passionate about the product, that's not good enough. You know, it's not good enough. Um, if if I can be passionate, then hopefully I can bring people with me on. So I think it starts there. Um, obviously, it's hard work it's it's that obsession turns into the hours we put into it and and not you know not just me it's the whole team we've got a team of people here uh, around us who are well i'd say as passionate and obsessed as i am maybe not quite as obsessed but as certainly as passionate um and you know enormous hard graft has gone into it so you know some people have said to me you know how did you how did you get into all these michelin restaurants i was like we knocked on the door 
And literally, I mean, literally, driving down the road um, down in Cornwall, turning up at Nathan Outlaw, knocking on the door and going, I want to talk to your head sommelier. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? um, and have you got an appointment? No, but I think he's going to want to taste this stuff that I've got, you know. Um, was it you knocking on the door? I knocked on the door down there. That's what it needs. Um, it? No point sending a sales rep. Yeah, no, and, and Adrian as well. You know, Adrian's uh, done a lot of this as, as well. And, yeah. you know, Adrian turning up at Sat Baines or, you know, me talking to uh, Melania at the Fat Duck or sitting down with Anthony at, yeah. uh, at the Hand and Flower. No, it's us. We've, we've taken it in there. Um, and some people have said to me, yeah, but, you know, um, I go to the wholesaler and the wholesaler is not interested. Or, I was like, well, no, you... you go to the coalface you've got to convince people you've got to show them the passion you have for the product and you've got to tell them your story and it's only that way that you get them uh, get them on board so no I mean, we've done we've done some long miles around the country and spent a lot of time with people um, and that's not you know it's not just the top restaurants it's a it's a lot of our pubs and bars and our um, our you know bartenders and others but and it's customers it's it's um, you know, you mentioned about um, someone. Yeah, um, Simon. At, yeah, exactly at, that. At, yeah, no, uh, I was just just trade thinking, fairs. Yeah, and no, I, you know they go to a few of those trade fairs, and people turn up in our bars and restaurants every day, or they used to. <laughs> Seen so much of them anymore. <laughs> They've all been laid off, which is uh, yeah, d- disappointing. Um, but not in the fact that they would always rock up at lunchtime without an appointment and say, "Look, I need to chat with the manager or the bar manager." You'd always be like, "You know, we're just too busy." But what they wouldn't have is that is that crazy look of enthusiasm and excitement and passion that you've got on your face <laughs> where. I wouldn't be able to turn you away either. And Simon said the same when I said I was coming to see you. He said, "Yeah, I saw him at a show about a year ago." But it, you know, it was really memorable that 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 enthusiasm and passion for the product came across. And we don't put, we don't turn up at lunchtime. We all we, no. we know the cadence of the restaurant, so we're exactly yeah. <laughs> we nobody. No, it's like the phone calls yeah. and they phone at lunchtime. Hello, it's about your energy contract, <laughs> and you're like, okay, you've not done energy in hospitality before, have you? Thank you very much. Goodbye, and uh, yeah, you and you hang up. You need to know the customer. So uh, thank you for sharing the story. I love it. A brilliant. We've we've got to draw it to a close. Um, I think it's yeah. I just think it's a brilliant product and I think it's a brilliant journey and you tell it well as well and I'm, I'm really excited for when you do end up buying your own plot of land and growing your own team <laughs> I'd always think I'd always put money on it if it was possible um, what's the future then you've got another product coming out because you you know there are so many teas oh. in the world aren't there that presumably you could make 20,000 kombuchas if you wanted to how do you decide how far you take this you know you, you get you must get people knocking on your door going hey I've got this tea I've got this leaf I've got this you know, what are you looking for? Is, is there sort of three or four different levels of difference you can have, or will there be two and a half thousand? Well, look, you know, we we need to run a commercial business as well, and so as much as you know, it's it's a, a deep sadness that I'm not still there with all of these teas traveling around Asia and picking them and putting them in a pot. Um, we we have to limit ourselves to you know a, a small number because we've got to get them out in, in reasonable volume. Um, we, as I said, we had three. We went out in the market with three that we felt spanned from, you know, we talk about Royal Flush as being our uh, full-bodied white, mm. Dry Dragon we talk about as being our Dry Sauvignon Blanc, and Smokehouse was much more our red in terms of food pairing, so with red meat, smoked meats, things mm. like that. We dropped that out, a um, couple of reasons, I'm going to it. Um, uh, our Iron Goddess is going to come into uh, into that space. It's Iron Goddess is, is more honey, nut, and a bit of apricot note. So it does extremely well as an aperitif drink or as a dessert uh, wine. It's almost slightly 
you think of trying to try thinking thinking of say a, a tokai that's less sweet and uh, carbonated with a touch of a touch of apricot on top. It's a slightly hard one to think about, but um, that's sort of where where that sits. Um, so it's less red meat. It does it does well because there's a slightly slightly nuttiness in there, so it does well. But it's not quite as robust with red. So we are also looking for the one that can sit in that space. And we've got some ideas. So we'll bring out Iron Goddess early next year. There's another one that we would want to sit in that space to, to fill that group. But yeah, there are, I've probably got 30, 40 or 50 that are almost ready to go wow. in those tasting notes. But you, know, you can't bring them out all the time. I mean, you've got everything from the first one, the Silver Needle Light Pendant Pot, we call our Silver Queen. It's still the most exquisite that I've ever brewed. But we know that its flavour tends to drip, tends to mellow quite quickly. So three to four months in bottle is probably the, the peak, and then some of those fruity notes drop off. So doing as a special, yeah, absolutely, we'll do it. But then we've got you know we've got Uva teas that make almost you know TCP medicinal notes, which sounds a bit weird, but phenomenal when you brew it with a bit of fruit behind it and things. Um, you've got some rich blacks. You've got I mean it, the the gamut is enormous. Mm. But what we've got to do is build a certain amount of volume in the core of the product range we've got. And only at that point do we, can we really then start to experiment more around the boundaries. But, you know, in, in retail, our, uh, our 750 sells at £8. So it sort of sits in that sort of lower end of a Prosecco, let's say, uh, on the supermarket shelves. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested in those ones that are really specialties that are going to take us into, you know, £15 a bottle. 25, 30 pounds a bottle because you know there is no reason why a champagne should be more expensive than what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, there's the duty piece on the top of it, but then in terms of the process we go through or the exquisiteness of the um, the the the, uh, uh, the raw materials we use, so it's it's about it's about um, you know getting that volume out there, educating the market, making people understand. Because there's no point putting something on the shelf at 25, 30 pounds when no one knows what the hell we are. <laughs> um, so it's, it's getting that understanding of, of what we are and what we do. And then it is seeding in those uh, special products around it um, yeah. in time, I think. Yeah, exciting, isn't it? You can, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can see like, yeah. the, the, the potential for growth is huge, isn't it? And that, that's domestic, like you say, let alone if you go uh, international. It is an education piece, isn't it? It's getting people to understand. It's, it, it does feel like a yeah, a new sort of genre, I suppose. Well, you know, we um, and again, mind blown, but we won the Imbibe Award for the best spa, the best non-alcoholic wine in the UK mm. uh, in the summer. We're a tea, or well, we yeah. start with a tea, yeah. and we won as the best non-alcoholic wine. Now, you know, you say it's not that surprising. Actually, you take a an alcoholic wine, you dealkalize it. Actually, you're you're stressing it, you're damaging it, etc. So, we're not doing any of that. We're naturally non-alcoholic. So, I guess you can say not that's surprising that we get a better product uh, in there but still it's quite a quite a shock that the best non-alcoholic wine is not great based yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, but yeah so that you know things like that are helping us to educate the the market um, faster um, and and it's uh, yeah giving us that reputation which mm. that reputational base which and is important do, do you do training and education events do you get bar teams to come in and teach Absolutely. them about it yeah. we're sitting at a table here yeah, which is, it's perfect know, spot for it. is set up for it I mean it's, it, it takes 20 people uh, yeah. here we can squeeze on 22 and we've often had this table well pre unfortunately yeah pre-COVID pre-March. yeah uh, we've had this table 
is stacked full of, of, of people from many of the top restaurants, top yeah, hotels, etc. Um, and you know, unfortunately, you're not able to again go around yeah. the brewery at the moment. But you know, we'll do a brewery tour. We'll come out. We'll do food. Um, t- we'll do tea, kombucha, and food pairings. Um, so people understand that flavor evolution from the mm. tea origins. We'll educate. We'll do a we'll do a bit of a masterclass on tea. Uh, and yeah, then, amazing. Uh, That's key, it. I think, isn't it? It's getting that education process, and uh, yeah, well, definitely. When when the world returns to normal, I'll bring my team up, and yeah, uh, yeah maybe we can do a, a half day or something. It'd be brilliant, and then we can help spread the good word, as hopefully this podcast will do as well. Yeah. So, if people want to buy it, are you in any retail places yet, or is this purely via your website and then the on trade? Or yeah, so um, we we sell on our website on realkombucha.co.uk. Um, you can buy from a number of other. Uh, online uh, businesses, uh, including Virgin Wines, where now they're leading non-alcoholic wine. Amazing. <laughs> um, Did you just uh, knock on Richard's door one day? Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> Be particularly enthusiastic. <laughs> just turn up on his island. Yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> up, rocked up one day. Um, <laughs> Not at lunchtime. You just no. said, come on, you've had lunch, <laughs> Richard. <easy>. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we are, um, we'll, we'll be in national retail as of, uh, as of January. Um, Got to hold back the news a little bit. But, okay. Uh, we will yeah. be in natural retail as in as as of January, uh, but there are, and and some other locations and some other more nationally based. Um, wow, amazing uh, businesses at that point. Yeah, love it. I'm excited. Okay, um, so I'll put links up to the website as well, so people right. can go and uh, and find it and read a little bit more and hopefully buy some social media channels as well. You personally, or more through the business? Where should people go to? Uh, probably more through stuff. the business. I, you know, I. I'm I'm less good on the social stuff than the than the the, the team and the businesses. Uh, I tend to tend to steer, keep myself a little bit away from uh, uh, social side. Perfect. All right. Well, I'll put links on the website as well. But look, thanks so much for sparing the time, and thanks for making such a an awesome product, and uh, yeah, making booze-free world more interesting. So congratulations. Love it. Thanks very much. Cheers. Right, I very much hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm sure you could tell. Uh, I really loved real kombucha. I like David. I like the story. Uh, I'm a big fan of running and cycling, and occasionally I want to have a few too many beers or too many cocktails, but it is nice to be able to go out sometimes if you've got a big event or a fitness sort of activity the following day and have a decent drink that is booze-free. So uh, grateful for him for creating something interesting, and I loved learning so much. Uh, I went and dug out his uh, Twitter account and Instagram account and the website, and I've popped all those up in the show notes for episode 111 at humansofhospitality.co.uk so please pop over there and whilst you're there why not leave your details sort of sign up for the newsletter I don't share it with anybody else but it just means that once a week on a Monday morning I will ping you a little email with the details of that week's guest you'll get the links through to their various channels automatically within the email and it saves you going and hunting around and it will probably remind you to have a little listen okay thank you so much I will be back next Monday with a new episode cheers